This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. For those of you who might not be familiar with uh, traditional church uh, worship, the whole service is worship. The prayers are a form of worship. Singing is a form of worship. Reading the Bible is a form of worship. And it's actually a blessing to be able to do that in public. And then the study of God's word is a form of worship. Even sitting around and standing around the table with the Lord is a form of worship. And we follow an ancient tradition called electionary, which is something we inherit from the synagogue. During the time of Jesus, the time of Yeshua, the Jewish people read the Bible in three years. Today they do it in one. That's a change which comes from the Middle Ages. But uh, traditional churches still read the Bible in three years. It means that um, us preachers don't get to preach our top 10 favorite sermons. Um, we preach the, the gospel. And we're up to uh, Luke. We're reading in Luke this year. So here we are in Luke chapter 10. We have this unique story. It's unique to Luke. It doesn't occur in any of the other gospels. It's Yeshua, it's Jesus, anointing 70. Some, some translations have 72. Uh, these disciples, he's obviously got more than 12, and he sends them out. This occurs just in Luke. Why? That's a good question. First of all, let's ask the next question. I mean, asking questions in the Middle East is a very Jewish thing, is it not? Okay, do you know that Jesus was asked 183 questions and he answered three of them? <laughs> All right, so either he's really rude, okay, or the way he does it, the way he answers is most often with another question. So who is Luke? I hear you ask, good question. Now usually in the, in the Western tradition, we would like to say that Luke is a Gentile. And he's the only Gentile uh, who writes the New Testament. And the reason we say that is we just want to have at least one. Okay? Just give me one little goy boy who can write some of the Bible. And, uh, but there's, there's absolutely no reason that we would say that. Okay? Uh, it's got nothing to do with his name. His name, Lucius, is actually a Latin name. But so is Paul. Okay? And it doesn't matter whether you have a Greek name like Stephen or, or anything. I mean, my name is Aaron, and I'm not even Jewish. Okay. And so the name is actually not, not all that important. Who does Luke write to? It's a very good question. He writes to a guy. It's one of the only gospels, it is the only gospel that actually has a, a, a definite name. I write to you, Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? I hear you ask. They're asking lots of questions, man. Who is Theophilus? His name, okay, lover of God or Yedidia, if we were good friend of God, if we were uh, going to translate that back into, into Hebrew. The only person that we know in all of history who actually has the name Theophilus is Theophilus ben Ananus, who was the high priest between the years 37 and 41 of the temple. So who's Luke writing to? He's writing to the high priest of the temple. And oddly enough, in the Gospel of Luke, that's where all the temple stories are. Jesus goes into the temple when he's a baby, in Luke. 
He meets Simeon and Anna in the temple in Luke. He has his bar mitzvah in Luke. He challenges the Sadducees in Luke. In fact, the last word in the entire Gospel of Luke is they came down from the Mount of Olives and they went into the temple. This is a very temple book. So he's writing to the high priest between the years 37 and 41. Ooh, that's our very early gospel. And according to the Orthodox, everyone knows who the, sorry, not, not the, the Jewish Orthodox, the Christian Orthodox, you know, the Greek Orthodox, the Armenians, the Russians, everyone uh, knows who they are. Uh, according to the Orthodox, they have a different view on who Luke is. Now, we as Protestants, we have a tendency only to dialogue with Catholics, usually to say things like, you're wrong. <laughs> and they go, no, you're wrong. And then we say, well, you're the Antichrist. And then they say, no, no, you're the Antichrist. And everyone's the Antichrist except the Antichrist. He ends up becoming a really nice guy by the end of all this. And we forget that there's 400 million other Christians out there. And they've been here since the beginning and they never left and actually they're holding a lot more of the Jewish traditions than we are okay, one of the reasons why we read our Bible in the center of the church where do we get that idea from we get that from the synagogue and you stand up to read normally you'd sit down to teach but that would look a little funny up here and so the Orthodox, they have a tradition that says that Luke is actually Jewish and he comes from the city of Antioch and he's an Antiochian Hellenistic Jew, a bit like Paul who's a, who's a Tarsus Hellenistic Jew. And he comes to Jerusalem, he can speak Hebrew, he can speak Greek, he can speak Latin, he's very intelligent, uh, he studies the Bible here, he knows a lot of the temple and he actually becomes part of the Jesus movement. And so, when we have uh, uh, this, this uh, tradition of the 70 disciples being sent out, according to the Greek Orthodox, Luke's one of them. Now, in our text, and this is the reason why Luke says it, why Luke actually has the story in his gospel. Why? Because he was there. Now, he doesn't list the names of the 70, but if you feel like it, you can always contact the Greek Orthodox. And they'll be very happy to supply you with an entire list. Okay? And they will tell you what everybody did, where they all went, and how they all died. Oof. Okay? It's always a bit sobering. Sometimes in our Bibles, it'll say Jesus sends out the 70, and sometimes it'll say Jesus sends out the 72, and we start to wonder, which one is it? Uh, it's just uh, some manuscripts... Half the manuscripts that we find that come out of the ground say 70 and the other half say 72. Okay? And no one really knows exactly which one, but more likely it was 70 and some copyist made a mistake and it sort of replicated itself. Where does the number 70 come from? I hear you ask. Good question. Now 70. 70 is a great Jewish number. Right? When, when Moses in Numbers 11, actually it was the Lord said to Moses, get for yourself 70 elders and anoint them. They're going to help you bear your burdens. You will not do this alone. And so Luke is probably drawing from that experience that this has already been done. Now remember, you cannot understand the New Testament without the Old Testament, without the Hebrew Bible. 
So here you have something very special. That these 70 are going to get the spirit, says the Lord. The Lord says, I'm actually going to put my spirit in them and they're going to, to help you. They're going to be anointed by the spirit of God. And Jesus, he says, he anoints himself 20, sorry, 70. He sends them before himself. He's already going to go to these places. Before he goes, he sends his shalchim. He sends his disciples. He sends his uh, apostles. And Jesus says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray that God can send out more laborers. And this saying is, uh, was also replicated in the Mishnah. Anyone heard of the Mishnah? It's a collection of early sayings, and some of them uh, predate Yeshua, predate Jesus by a hundred, some of them after, after Jesus by a hundred or so. And one of the ones right at the beginning in the Pirkei Avot has an interesting saying. We quoted it last week, where uh, the, the, the Jewish fathers say, the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are lazy. <laughs> Whoops. The daylight is fading. In that image of work while it is still day, daylight is fading. The task is enormous, but the reward is great. And the master is urgent. And you can see that same thinking here, that the harvest is huge and there's just this one Messiah. And so he gets himself disciples. And, in, and we mentioned this again last week, but we'll do it again. Repetition is a good thing. Discipleship is not something that is invented by the Jewish people. Okay, it actually comes from the Greek world where the, uh, the Greeks... Uh, thinkers would gather themselves students. That's what a disciple is. Talmudim in Hebrew means students. Uh, make for yourselves students of the Bible. That's what Yeshua says. Go into all the world and make disciples. He doesn't say go get them saved. Salvation's actually implied. Just make a student of the word of God. Study it. And the Jewish people looked at what the, 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 the Greeks were doing and went, wow, it's a really good idea. Let's do it better. So they got disciples together and, and discipleship in the, in, the, in the Jewish world is not somebody who shows up on Shabbat, listens to a two-hour sermon and goes home. It's not somebody who shows up midweek on Wednesdays and has a Bible study and goes home. Disciples stick with your rabbi like white on rice. When you agree to become a disciple of a master, you live with them. You follow them around. You do everything for him. So when Jesus woke up in the morning, a disciple cooked him breakfast. A disciple cleaned his clothes. A disciple watched intently. How does Jesus pray? What does he eat for breakfast? How does he relate to women? How does he relate to the, the Gentiles or the authority of the temple? How does he relate to his parents? They also listen to his Bible studies. They also listen to his prayers. And, and they mimic their master. They look like him, walk like him, dress like him, talk like him. In some modern translations, that's called a cult. But 
when Yeshua, when Jesus has finished with his disciples, how many Jesuses have we got? 120? 70? We're supposed to look like the master, act like the master, be like the master, talk like him, and do all the things that he did. So Jesus gets himself some disciples and he sends them out two by two in pairs. And we might say, wonder why he does that? It's a very good question. Um, You know, there's lots of reasons probably why. I think in our modern period, it's, it's very hard to name a ministry after yourself when you're in pairs. Have you noticed that? A lot of people, you know, we follow the Lord, but the ministry is named after themselves. Hmm. When you're with a pair, it's a bit harder to do that. Brothers and sisters, this is not the Aranaimi show. If it ever becomes that, I quit. This is the Jesus Christ Superstar show, which is an excellent movie. It's about him. It's about what he's done. It's about his kingdom that expands. And we get to be a part of it. We get to look like him and do the things himself. Noticed in much of our world, most of our televangelists are alone. Yet it was the master who sent us out two by two. And where are we being sent out? Be nice if someone said, Lord, the Lord is sending me to Hawaii. I'd love to have a mission to Hawaii. What does Yeshua say? I am sending you out like lambs among the wolves. Jesus gets his disciples and he sends them into a boat, into a storm. He's always sending us into danger. It's like, hang on a second. Isn't he good, warm and fuzzy? Isn't he going to keep us and defend us and guard us? Yes. But at the same time, he also acknowledges it's a dangerous world out there. He knows it. He came to save it. He knows exactly what type of world it is. And he knows what they're going to do. He knows that they're going to reject him and they will reject us. And so he sends us out in pairs as lambs among the wolves. The mission, brothers and sisters, is not going to be easy. It's not going to be smooth. There will be problems. Some of us might fall. The master is urgent. And they knew the urgency of the mission. Don't take anything with you. No sitting down and preparing, doing the itinerating, raising up the the budget. No making the plans go. But what about being taken care of? They'll take care of you. And the early church, a lot of people say when they come to Jerusalem, they say, Aaron, I want to get back to being like the early church. I want to go back to the church in the book of Acts. And usually I say, I don't think you do. You know, they fasted twice a week. Yeah, they did. You know, they prayed the prayers daily. Yeah, they did. Liturgical ones. The early church also had these apostles who would run around the early, early believing community and they, they, they made a rule. It's in the Didache. Anyone ever read the Didache? It's a great book. If you ever want to know what the early church looked like, read that. Okay, it shows you what the early church looked like in the first 100 years. And they had a rule that when someone comes to your, your community, you must receive them. You might be getting a visitor from the Lord. 
He is to be given the platform and he will speak. But if he asks for money, he's false. If he stays longer than three days, he's false. They wanted, uh, if you wanted to be part of the team, you knew what you were going to be like. You were going to be like Jesus. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. Son of man, he doesn't have a place for him. He does now. Oh yes, a most glorious place. Workers do deserve their wage. That's what Yeshua says. But what wage is it? Note the context of the passage. Okay, the context isn't, you know, what do you deserve? You deserve a car, you deserve a house, you deserve a pension plan. Okay, there's no high-end salary. There's no life insurance in this one. You will get your portion. Give me my portion for the day. Whatever that is. And the good thing about that is my portion might be a little different to your portion. You know, if you've got 10 kids, you need a bit more than I do. I've got three kids. And I should be happy when God gives you your portion. In fact, I should pray God gives you your portion. Because if you've got your portion, you will also be generous. Maybe even with me. Think about it. How far we have come 2,000 years on from this message. Isn't that interesting? Our culture today demands a lot more than what Yeshua says. And he, when, the, when the disciples go into these villages, what are they going to do? They're going to talk about the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? When did it start? Well, according to Jewish tradition, the kingdom of heaven began at Mount Sinai when God became a king. A king needs a people. A king needs a kingdom. And God took his people to Mount Sinai and said, today you are a kingdom of priests to me and I am your king. The kingdom of heaven began there. Wherever God is ruling and reigning, you will find the kingdom of heaven. So where's the kingdom of heaven, brothers and sisters? It's right here. It's in this very room. And when we leave today and go out there, the kingdom of heaven, we take it with us. And as we go, we reflect the light and the hope and the passion of the Messiah. And whenever new people become believers and join us and God rules and reigns in their life, the kingdom of heaven expands. You cannot beat this kingdom. There are only two kingdoms of the world. There's the kingdom of heaven and then there's the other one. That's it. And where God rules and reigns, he is life. He is hope. He is authority. He is power. And in him is no death. So you will defeat the demons. Yes, you will. You will heal. Yes, you will. Sickness will flee from the face of the curse in front of the kingdom of heaven. And good news will be preached to the poor. And Yeshua says, whoever hears you, hears me. This is the voice of the Messiah. So think about that in terms of responsibility. You and I and our responsibility to be the voice of the Messiah. What is this world hearing from us? It's an incredible responsibility. 
when we say that God cares for the world, do they actually see it in our lives? When we say that God is the hope of the nations, do we reflect hope to the nations? When we say that Jesus is the light of the world, have we got that to shine in the darkness? I would hope so. And the blessing, brothers and sisters, is we don't do this by ourselves. There's at least two of us. So when I make a mistake, when I blow it, when I need someone to come along and pick me up, then my brothers and sisters come and they say, keep going, don't stop. You can repent. What does Jesus say? He says, if you give, if you forgive the sins of others, they are, they are forgiven. And one of the pleasures of the church, the blessings that the church has, is to stand up and just remind everybody that they are indeed forgiven. And so we will do that again today. We will be reminded of the words of Jesus and our priest will do that. It's the priestly function to turn around and say, your sins are are forgiven. You can have a place in the world to come. There is hope for the future. Think about the culture that we live in. The culture doesn't want to hear the message of the Messiah. The culture wants to replace it with its own messages. Wants to hear itself. And that's a bit sad. It's also one of the reasons why the church stands when we hear the gospel. You want to hear the voice of the Messiah? We heard it read. And it was just a delight to stand. I know, stand up, sit down, sit down, stand up. Uh, Going to church is like an Anglican gym class. But it is also the honor for us to hear the voice of the Messiah read publicly. That is good. So Jesus gathers himself some disciples. He arms them to the teeth with his spirit. And he sends them out. He says, don't take much. It's very urgent. Uh, bring peace. If no one wants it, that's fine. But if you, people want it, you got it. They'll take care of you. Eat whatever they give you. Drink whatever they give you. And then come back and report. And they do. And oh, what a report. They come back and they say, Master, even the demons ran away from us. It was fantastic. Anyone like a good demon slaying? Yeah, I like a good demon slaying. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He's done that before. This is not the first time. Now, Satan in the Bible falls several times. Uh, There's one actually also in Revelation. Satan is not his name, by the way. He actually has a very personal name. Uh, Satan in Hebrew, Satan in Hebrew means the enemy because that's his job function. He is the enemy of everything that we stand for. It's his title. We often attribute Isaiah 14 to him. You, you know it. Where it says, Isaiah fourteen twelve, How you are fallen from heaven. O Lucifer, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who, are weak, you who weaken the nations. I mean, he has, he, has, he has nothing about him that makes people strong. All he does is tear people apart. 
For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mountain of the congregation. I will sit on the mountain of the north. I will ascend above the clouds of of the heights of the clouds and I will be like the most high. No, you'll be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. This is where, uh, even though in context, Isaiah is actually talking about the king of Assyria, in the second temple period, they actually attribute this to Satan. Where does the rebellion against God actually start? It's not in the garden. Where does it start? It starts in heaven. The rebellion against the Lord started in heaven. And the name in Hebrew, Hillel ben Shachar, morning star, son of the dawn. That's his real name. In Latin, you translate morning star, Lucifer. That's where we get it from. That's why we call him that name. It's just his name in Latin. It sounds a little better in he- than the Hebrew one. It's almost hard to pronounce. Okay? He was... He, the, the rebellion started in heaven and was brought down to earth. And in Jewish tradition, when the angels descended, they came down on Mount Hermon, the mountain of the many. What many? Well, in Jewish tradition, there were 200 angels who rebelled. And here, Lucifer says, I'm going to sit amongst them. I'm going to rule them. And, uh, and, uh, and, the, and the Psalm, and the, and the Isaiah knows, he says, you're going to sit on the mountain of the many, the Mount Hermon. And in Revelation 12, it says there's a war in heaven. And Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels, and Michael wins. But heaven, just like the earth, is tainted by sin. And that's why God has to make a new one. You know, behold, I will make all things new. I will renew the heavens and I will renew the earth. If heaven was perfect, why would he have to make another one? Okay? It's... Eventually, that too will have uh, the curse wiped away. And so the enemy falls. It's great. The demons are crushed. Fantastic. But what does Yeshua say at the end? He says, Do not rejoice that you beat up a few demons. Don't rejoice that the Spirit submitted to you. Rather, rejoice what? That your names are written in heaven. So what do we actually rejoice in? It's a good question for us to study as we look at our portion today. Do we rejoice in the power of the Holy Spirit? What does our culture tell us? What are we rejoicing in? Do we rejoice only in the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues? These are great. These are wonderful. These are part of the kingdom of heaven. And they are to be expected We should expect healings. We should expect the spirit to show up. We should expect him to beat some demons. But that is not what delights us. It's what happens. But what we should delight in is the same thing that the angels delight in. Whenever an unrighteous person comes to faith, heaven rejoices. We should also rejoice that our names are written in the book of life. That actually should be the the only thing. That's what we should desire for our kids. Is it not? Our culture says, no, they need to go to university and they need to get a really good job and they need to go on a special track and they need to make it to to be a CEO of a company by the time they're 40. 
and the pressure that we put on them when really the Messiah's yoke and his burden is so much lighter. Brothers and sisters, what do you want your kids to be? Believers. If there's anything else, great. Fantastic. But the first thing we should want is that their names are written in heaven. That's the perspective that we need to have. That's the Messiah's perspective for his disciples. And that's the best of messages that you can ever give anybody is hope. Because without the Messiah, without the Redeemer, without the, the, even the idea of redemption, what has this world got to offer you? Nothing. You know, people work really hard and they, and they neglect family and they neglect friends and they stay up really late and they work really hard to climb to the top of the mountain and then they get there and what do they see? Nothing. But we have hope that it will all get better because our master is alive. He sits and he rules and he, and he reigns and his kingdom is expanding. And his kingdom is of peace and of patience and of joy and of self-control and of all of those fruits of the Spirit. Our culture seeks to change our perspective away from the kingdom of heaven. We need to make sure that we reread it every day and recapture the perspective of the Messiah. So brothers and sisters, we have to all go into the harvest field. We have to pray that God will send some more laborers. Guess what? That's you. When you walk out that door, we have to act like God is our king. You have to believe it. You have to trust in it. You have to hope in it. But you're not going to do it alone. You'll do it with a, with a community that's all behind you. You'll do it with the power of the ecclesia, the guf hamashiach, the body of the Messiah, the church, for want of a better word. And the gates of hell cannot stand against this. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. And we need to return to ourselves the joy of our salvation. We need to recapture the joy that, and rejoice that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Because this world puts on so much pressure on us and takes away our joy so brothers and sisters, return once again the joy of your salvation. You are redeemed. The blood of the lamb paid for you. You were of infinite worth to the king of the universe. He loved you just as much as the guy sitting next to you. Boy, that's a good thing. So brothers and sisters, return once again the joy of your salvation. Your names are written in the book of life. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.